Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 54. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doctor who's cooked up something fun in the laboratory, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. I hope I haven't cooked up anything in the laboratory. Today's topic is radiation. This is not something we want to be dealing with. <laughs> Nothing explodes. I, look, what we're supposed to do is we're, we're fishing for good titles, and I wanted the title to be... Rob has something explosive for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, the other day, oh, I went over to your house and we were doing a little craftsmanship in your garage. Yes, we were. I wanted to say thank you because I, honestly, God, neglected to say so. <laughs> so, audience, the, what happened was my bees had gotten to the point that they were chewing through the partition in the middle of their bee box. Which was temporary and which was never supposed to be used, but we used styrofoam anyway, and yeah, well. And we knew this day would come. The good news is, is it doesn't hurt the bees. It looks like that they're not stupid, and they spit out what they chew, and it just, they shuffle it away. They sweep it away into the beetle traps at the bottom of the box. But it did create the problem that now there was a hole so that all of the workers could get over to the empty side of the box where we didn't have enough honeycomb foundation and we didn't have a queen separator. So I hurried over to Rob's. Rob, in his shop, he put together the queen separator for me. I got some B-roll. And I was going to mention, Hmm? it's nothing too terribly serious, Rob, but by the time this episode is out, I'm going to have a little video with your permission where you're working on that queen excluder. Sure, that's cool. I'll throw it up on YouTube and I'll just drop it in the show notes if anybody wanted to take a glimpse at your bee box because we've talked about it before. We have. Did you install it in your hive? I did that same night. So I got home. It was like, what, 8.30? was not quite dark. I knew the bees would be asleep. I opened up the box. I had no problem getting in there. Popped it in. It's a little bit snug. abode just a little bit, but it's. <laughs> I'm not complaining. It's snug enough that it stands upright. Okay. It was designed to bow just a little bit, and I'm glad it did. That we don't want it loose, so it falls over. Right. All right. So my beehive is ready for full fledged production. Wow. I cannot wait. Mine is not because every time I have an opportunity to open a hive up, it's cold. Like today, it was 45 degrees this morning. This was uh, yes, it, it was. <laughs> Like, I got up this morning, and the heater was running furiously. Man, what is and that? Then, this is May, man. This uh, is air conditioning weather. It's not heat weather, but all right. No, it's not. It's so weird. Guys, in Georgia, it was 45 this morning. In Oregon, where my in-laws live, it was 79. <laughs> Oregon! <laughs> you, know, you know what's really funny is, before you became a beekeeper, you probably didn't pay attention to the weather like this. No, I didn't. Yep, and now we're going to be looking at every day. It's even worse because I have all those electronic things reporting to me what the weather is. Oh, boy. Mm. You know, now that you mention it, that just reminds me. I need to add to my my shopping list to get a bee bath. A bird bath? Do I, what bird do you bath. call it? Where, bird whatever bath. bird bath. Can we call it a bird bath if the bees are using it? Bee fountain? Bee fountain. I'm going to get a bee fountain so that they have a, a like a watering hole, a bee watering hole. That's smart. Because they're going to get thirsty soon. We've had a lot of rain showers, but I am concerned that they will get thirsty sooner or later. What do you think you'll do for your bees hydration? I'll put a bee bath out or something, a bucket or a bucket full of pebbles or something like that. I don't know. Okay. 
I just don't want to like breed mosquitoes in the bucket or yeah. Or, well, you have to dump it out every other day or something like that every every three or four or five days because you're right. Mm, standing okay. water equals mosquitoes. Mm. Yep. Okay, so then let's move on to the discussion. This is going to be a continuation on the periodic table, but with a twist more specific. We're getting into the details. And Rob, I understand that you have stories that are going to make this uh, interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Some of my favorite stories, actually. When the time I turn radioactive. <laughs> you got superpowers for a couple of minutes and you haven't told us? Yep, 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 yep. Well, first, though, I want to issue a mea culpa and an apology because... Just like on an episode we did a while back, I did it last time too. I kept calling radium radon. Is there a radon substance? Is that another thing? Yeah, it's an element. And radium is an element. Okay. And I was talking about Marie Curie and radon and blah, blah, radon and blah, blah, radon. And I meant radium every time. They're just, they're totally different elements, man. I mean, different places in the periodic table. I'm sure Mr. Radon does not like me to... Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> sure. So there's easy to confuse words and I do it all the time. And it, it just kills me that it, retrospectively, you look back, it's like, what was I thinking? And well, I wasn't thinking, I was just talking. And the wrong word was coming to my mouth. Mm. All right, so here, Darren. Yeah, well, all things considered, given how many elements there were, yeah, I think you did a pretty good job. You can cut yourself a little slack. All right. All right, but I'm always hard on myself when I do things like that. All right, so here's the story. Radioactive Rob. On two separate occasions. Insert dramatic thematic music right here. <laughs> when I was teaching high school, I was teaching AP biology and electronics and physics labs, chemistry labs sometimes. Because I was in that role, the head of the science department, who was also the AP physics teacher, she always had me go with the AP physics students to Oak Ridge National Laboratories every year. And she had worked up there. She knew a bunch of people. So we always had really cool, cool tours of really cool places. We got to go into Watts Bar Nuclear Power Plant before they commissioned it. So it was like a, a test ground, like all the nuclear engineers would go there and practice. And to be a nuclear engineer and practicing, you sit in a chair and you look at lights all day long. And hopefully none of the, none of the lights turn red. Yeah, I have another friend from church that's a nuclear engineer, and he said it's insanely boring. Insanely boring. And you want it to be boring. You do not want an exciting <laughs> like day at the nuclear time, power yes. plant. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to Watts Bar, and one year, the, the guys, you know, we divide up into a couple of groups, and the guys said to our group, hey, any place you want to go? I said, yeah, can we go in the containment vessel? He's like, sure. So we went in through the 20-foot thick concrete wall into where the nuclear reactor was going to be on fire. And we got to look at it. That is that so cool. cool, man. Is it just completely inert and it's completely off and it's just a dead empty chamber at the moment? Yeah, there was no, nothing radioactive in there. But it was like, this is what it looks like and we're going to put the uranium right there. Wow. So it's a place you could not go today, you would die. And even after they pull the core out and let it cool somewhere else for... You know, a couple hundred years, you still can't go into that place without lots of protective gear. Mm. But we just, you know, in there with t-shirts and blue jeans, <laughs> walking around looking at, you know, a place that would kill you now. But the <laughs> next cool. year, a different guy asked the same question. And I, I said, yeah, can we go in the cooling tower? And he said, sure. I said, yes. I thought the cooling tower, you know, that, that big, funny shaped thing is a hyper parabolic 
It's like a, it's a literally 100 yards tall and 100 yards wide. It's a big white thing that you see at nuclear power plants, a cooling tower. It's a steam coming out the top. You know what I'm talking about, right? I did not realize that that's what it was. But yeah, yeah. I do remember seeing them from time to time. Okay. That's what that is. And I thought it would be filled up with pipes, but it's not. It's completely empty. There's some spray bars on the bottom. So they spray hot water and it evaporates it and it goes up this whole thing and goes out. But because it wasn't a nuclear power plant yet, they had all the parts there, but there's no water and there's no radiation, no radiation there anyway. It's just a big heat exchanger. And so he opens up this door and we go up this little ladder and it's a, a catwalk about 10 feet off the bottom of this thing. And it's literally it's 100 yards wide and 100 yards tall and it's empty. And in the middle of it, there's like a Star Wars control panel. Dude. And so... We start walking down this catwalk. And of course, the first thing anyone does is they say, Echo! Echo! And everyone laughs, ha ha, there's an echo, ha ha ha. You know, okay. But then we get into the middle where they have this, like these, literally, it's like that thing that Luke Skywalker is holding on to when he said, No, that's impossible! You know, that scene. That's totally what I was picturing <laughs> when you said that. Well, that's what I was picturing when I was standing there. And when, once we got to that spot, that's when the echo happened. What? As in, Everyone's like, wow, AJ. I made it for him. Just be quiet. And it took a second for it to settle down. And I just snapped my fingers. And it went. Wow. And everyone said, whoa. It's a hyperparabolic shape. So it curves inwards and then outwards. And it was a perfect reflecting echo chamber of awesomeness. Wow. Literally one of the coolest things I've ever been in in my life was that. The, the inverse of that, I heard that uh, a lot of technology companies, when optimizing their smartphones, they construct a sound dampening space, a great big room, a couple of stories tall, and they you know, install all the soundproofing foam. Yep. And it's jaggedy, and it's in all directions, and then they have a pedestal in the middle of this enormous theater they put their phone on top of and then they test sounds to see how much reverberation it has what it picks up in what directions but it, the people who've gone in there to hear it for themselves say it's just the weirdest thing because it's quieter than quiet it's qu- yes. it's, it's bizarre like, like driving you, you say something quiet literally mm-hmm, you can't hear yourself you know your your voice doesn't even travel Yes. So it's crazy. I, I love both extremes. I love messing with sound like that. When I was in high school, I was in the computer club, of course, duh. You know, back when everyone had a Commodore 64. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Anyway, we went, we went on a, a, a trip, a school trip, to a place called Photo Circuits on Long Island. And this was the company that was making the first... Now, Photo Circuits is where my mother worked, where they built the Atari. Never mind. I don't know what the place is, was called, but... This was the place where they're making the first phone voice systems. Oh. Please deposit 15 cents to continue your call. You know, that kind of voice. Oh. It sounded, it's just so flat and monotone and, and wrong. It was like, it's just a total computer voice and it wasn't getting any inflection right. Well, it wasn't a computer voice. It was a woman's voice. Yeah. And what they would do is they'd have her sit there and she would read a couple of hundred words. <laughs> and she would say each one of them like five times. Seven. Seven seven and she would say it a bunch of times and take the best one and she'd go to another word and they had one of those soundproof booths so it was just like a you know industrial park and you go in the thing 
And then inside a room, they had another room. You go inside of that room. And inside of that room, they had like a, a silence of the lamb box <laughs> windows on all sides and there's a door but it was a double door you open one door and then you opened another door and they swung different directions and in between them there was a gap and so i looked down you know into the gap and the guy says that goes down 30 feet these two buildings don't actually touch each other wow so they dug a 30 foot deep hole and built a 30 foot tall pillar and a glass box, and around that, they built another glass box that's attached to the rest of the building. <laughs> and that was their soundproof room. And I had that exact experience where it was oppressive to be in there. Yes. Good way to describe it. It's like suck the air out of your lungs, sort of. And it was just, it was odd. <laughs> so I hear you. Anyway, so how did you get radiated? Well, it's funny because. We're doing all these little anecdotes. We're not going to get to our main show prep that we all prep for today. <laughs> I got irradiated on two separate occasions at Oak Ridge National Labs. Now, when you go to Oak Ridge, there are like caution, do not cross tapes all over the place with radiation symbols. Okay. Because this was, you know, where we did a lot bunch of stuff in World War II for Manhattan Project. And we weren't very safe with radiation yet. Yeah. They had a, a nuclear power plant there. And what they did is they had all these horizontal channels and they'd stick a uranium whatever plug in a, in a pipe and take a wooden thing and ram it down through the pipe until it got into the reactor core. But that would push another radi- uranium pellet through the pipe and out the wall outside and it landed in a pond. A pond? <laughs> a thing of water outside okay. in the air. Okay. is radiation. What are you thinking? Yeah. But that was back in the day. When we were still kind of dumb, didn't quite realize how dangerous radiation was yet. We were just figuring it out. And so everywhere you go, there's, you know, do not cross this area. And it just looks like regular grass with a tree growing in it. But no, it's radioactive. So we go into this special nuclear power plant. And we only went up into the control room and looked down through the glass at the blue glowing pool of water. And it was a special place where they made. Californium, which is $25 million per gram. Wow. They make it by bombarding some elements with radioactive sources. They absorb the neutrons and protons and whatever, and the atomic number goes up, and they take one element, and they transform it into Californium, which one of the isotopes is a 20-minute half-life. Some isotopes of Californium are shorter than that, and some are longer than that, but the stuff doesn't last very long. Now, for the listeners who don't quite remember, what does Californium do? It's just one of the radioactive elements that's high up on the periodic table. Okay. And it's only man-made. We've never found it in nature because it doesn't last long enough to be found. Wow. Even, even in a young Earth scenario, had God made a bunch of Californium, it's all gone. So to get it, we have to make it. Now, why, would, why do you think we spend so much money making something like that? That's a very good question. I would imagine there cannot be too terribly many uses for it but well, then again i could be way off base well it has some uses uh-huh one microgram of the stuff releases 139 million neutrons per minute okay that's a lot of neutrons well it is a lot of neutrons but it's a neutron source for radioactive experiments uh particle accelerators some nuclear power plants need a neutron source to start the reaction well guess what you can take a little bit of Californium and kickstart a nuclear power plant. 
<laughs> wow. Okay. It's so also, that's mighty important. It, and it also has some applications in medicine. You know, radiation therapy, but that's very expensive radiation therapy. But um, I should say. Literally, we've only made a few grams of this ever. Wow. And there's an entire, the, the whole entire power plant was dedicated to only making Californium. Well, both times we went there, you know, hands in my pockets, not touching anything. Before you walk in, everyone has to step into a, a radiation detector. And it looks like a, like a, um, a mummy sarcophagus. But it, it, it doesn't close, only half of it. So you stick half your body in there, and it counts. And then you step out, you turn around, and you stick your other half of your body in there, and it counts. And on the way in, no problem. Both times on the way out, the alarm went off for me Ooh. and nobody else. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, the CIA is going to swoop in here. They're going to accuse me of stealing atomic secrets. What's going on? <laughs> so I have no idea what happened. It didn't happen on the way in. And with the same exact machine on the way out, I got flagged both times. <laughs> really? That's yeah. so weird. So, yeah, Californium, it's dangerous stuff. Do you have any idea what it could have been? I have no clue. What on your person would have been the thing? No, it shouldn't have been. On there, your shoes? There, no. Okay. There's no stray radioactive particles in a place like that. It just doesn't happen. They, they have radiation detectors everywhere. There are not particles floating around. There's no stray radiation. Unlike at Georgia Tech... So it's more likely a false positive for an element that's not the radiation, but something else that the detector thought was radiating. Yeah, the guy said, every once in a while, this happens. Hmm. And I got back in the machine again after everyone was done. And okay, that time it didn't flag me, but it happened two years in a row. Yeah, that's remarkable. And I don't think, oh, wait a second. Is it possible the guy was sitting there pushing a button to make the alarm go off for the teacher? Oh, oh no that makes a lot more no sense. this is my whole life i had the story and the story might not be right he might have just been yanking my leg and i was too stupid to notice it he's just messing with you <laughs> see i would have done that to a teacher and i would have <laughs> but then i would have told him maybe yes. he was just like poker face bill and you know he never said anything <laughs> he's just waiting to see if you catch on <laughs> no Oh, does this guy ever get it? Oh, I'm a dummy. Second year. He still doesn't realize what I'm Okay, doing. but <laughs> you go in this place. You go up in the control tower. You look down, and there's a pool of water with a blue glow. What is that blue glow? Uh, what? Um, hmm. This is actually the subject of a Nobel Prize. The man who figured it out was a Russian scientist. He and a couple other people got a Nobel Prize for this from work done in the early 1900s. I imagine it has to be very difficult to identify because you can't just go up and touch it. True. And water doesn't glow blue. It's the same exact water. Take it out. It's not glowing. Put it back mm. next to this nuclear reactor and it glows blue. Well, what it is, is it's a Doppler effect. But I thought that the Doppler effect, forgive me for my, my ignorance, but I thought that that was a sound, not a visual thing. Well, it is light. Doppler shift is, is part of like Big Bang physics and Einsteinian relativity. And the reason why when you're moving away from someone close to light speed, you look red. But when you're coming toward them close to light speed, you look blue. Huh. Well, the answer turned out to be the speed of light in water is rather slow. The speed of light in a vacuum, we all know, right? It's three times 10 to the eighth. It's very quick. All right. But in water, it's not nearly as fast as it is in outer space. It slows down. Yeah. Light slows down in eyeglasses. That's how eyeglasses work. 
when a light ray hits a piece of glass, it bends because the part that just hits the glass is slow and going slower than the part that's not in the glass yet. And so light bends when it hits glass. Well, same thing in water. Basically, the charged particles, the very high intensity radiation coming out of this is going faster inside the reactor core than it is when it hits the water. And it has to slow down. And so as that particle is radiating energy, when it slows down, the energy piles up very much like a Doppler shift or a Doppler effect. And that, that now the energy is more intense than it would be otherwise, and it warms up or whatever irradiates somehow the water molecules, and they glow blue. Wow. Bizarre. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's because the particle is traveling faster than the speed of light in water when the particle hits the water. And it has to slow down, and that Doppler buildup makes the water glow blue. And that's called Cherenkov radiation. What a cool thing. And I have seen this with my eyeballs. And it is really ethereal and strange. Oh, dude, that does sound amazing. It sounds like something like a uh, special effect out of a fantasy movie. Yeah, exactly. You look down into the pool of water and you see that. But imagine people in the late 1800s, early 1900s are looking at this glow, this blue, this phosphorescent weirdness. And what were they thinking? Hmm. It's so sci-fi and it's so, you know, elves and wizards sort of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. What were they thinking? Well, Scherenkopf figured it out. It has a physical effect. It's not magic. Hmm. In, in the late 19th century, there were all those uh, spiritists. Yes. They would have thought that that was ghosts, the dead. I bet they would have loved to have a spare nuclear power plant under that little table with a fish tank on top. Oh, it's glowing blue. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa's in the room. So as I'm looking this stuff up, Trying to think of a storyline for today's episode, I ran across a, um, an article in moneyinc.com, and it lists the five most expensive elements in the world. Californium is number two. Only number two? The, oh, that's nothing. The, oh, forget Californium. The most expensive element in the world is francium. Ooh. It's a billion dollars a gram. What? Wow. I needed to sell one gram of that. Can you help me out? <laughs> no, because it only has a 20-minute half-life. By the time I got it to you, it would be worthless. <laughs> wow. I mean, if I had a gram of it at my house and I drove to your house, by the time I got there, I'd only have half a gram and I'd be dead. So on that note then, Rob, how do you store something that has a half-life like that? Do you just put it into a vacuum-sealed container the size of a gram to keep it do you, does, it, does that improve its shelf life? How does that work? Um, no, you make it and then it gets used. You make it on the spot and use it immediately? Yeah. Oh. Can't store it. It can't last. It just doesn't last. Or you make a lot of it and then you have half and then half and then half and then half. And then, but hopefully you have a few atoms left by the time you get to do whatever with it. In fact, a lot of the elements up to element 118, we never had a lot of it. In fact, some of them, only a couple of atoms were de- were discovered and so there's rules like okay you need at least this many atoms and you have to observe it at least this many times or you actually you, we can't say you actually made it so some of those elements up in the high numbers on the periodic table we actually don't have any of it it appeared and then it immediately disintegrated wow because <laughs> atoms of that size are simply unstable 
So then if you needed to reproduce it, they know how to? Yeah. Okay. Or are there doubts there? Oh, no, 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 no. Because other laboratories around the world will do it. And usually what they do is they take a heavy element and they bomb it with another heavy element. They try to, or maybe a slightly smaller element, they try to get the, uh, the nuclei to fuse. And so they know what they're going to get out of it within range. And they get lots of side reactions and things. But they know if, I, if we take this and this and add them together, well, the atomic number will be this. Okay, so this will give us element number 117. That's literally how they made it. <laughs> okay. So francium, billion dollars a gram. Californium, $25 million a gram. The next one down is carbon. What? Carbon. I would never have <laughs> seen that. <laughs> the world is made of carbon. We're all full of carbon. I mean, the table I'm on is almost 100% pure carbon. Um, <laughs> So there's got to be a catch here. Certain forms of carbon. Coal, of course, is not worth very much. But a perfect, pure diamond with no inclusion can be $65,000 a gram. Okay, so what if we can't make any uh, francium and californium? Can we get to work on that? Uh, Create a crystallarium we put in your garage and just take some coal, throw it in the machine, spit out a couple of diamonds once a week? Sure, man. That'd be a great idea. But you can't start with coal because coal has uranium in it and uranium will give radioactive inclusions in your diamond and they'll discolor the diamond as the uranium breaks down. Oh, bummer. See, I thought you turned coal into diamonds. Well. What what other element do you use? Artificial diamonds are made in a microwave. Oh. (laughs) Not a kitchen microwave, (laughs) but it's a microwave that's tuned somehow the vibration frequencies of carbon and that's how they make artificial diamonds get out yeah that's amazing so so they're using a particular form of charcoal or is it another kind of stone no no no. i think they're using carbon dioxide or or methane or something like that really to to fabricate the diamond yeah now i know i've wow. i know i have studied this before but it's been 15 years since i looked at it i don't remember exactly how they do it Maybe we need to look it up and report to our audience how they make fake diamonds. But it's not free. It costs electricity and instrumentation. So they're not cheap, but they're really good diamonds. Now, on that note, though, again, last week you told us that gold is gold and it doesn't transform into another element. Is there an ele- is there a element you can take and fabricate into gold? Like we can take a, you know those qualities and turn them into diamonds. Wow. I don't know the answer. Nuclear synthesis is really for the ones we can't get. Can you make gold from, and of course, it's going to be, you know, a million dollars an ounce for this gold because you need a nuclear power plant or a particle accelerator to make it. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I, I, I guess, you know, within theoretical, my understanding of theory anyway, hmm. yeah, you could slam two atoms together and make gold. Wow. I don't know which ones though. Interesting. I, I don't know. I think I need to change my career. This sounds like something that needs to be figured out. <laughs> well, you know, there's more gold dissolved in the ocean than there is gold dissolved in the Earth's crust, probably. Uh-huh. Or at least there's more gold dissolved in the ocean than all the gold humans have ever mined in the history of humankind. Oh, wow. And we're just drinking it. In, in seawater. Yeah. In seawater. Well, okay, the fish are drinking it. Yeah. It's fish pee. Gold is fish pee. Yep, that's it. <laughs> but to get it out, because it's like parts per trillion or maybe parts per billion, maybe, to pull it out cost too much money it costs way it would cost way more to pull gold out of seawater than it is to find and dig a hole in the ground and find gold and so that's why we don't pull it out of seawater wow the next element down number four is plutonium four thousand dollars a gram 
That doesn't sound like a lot, considering you can blow up cities. Yeah, it really drops from yeah, 25 from billion, million to 65,000 to 4,000. Meh. 4,000, yeah. But a lot of that cost is probably regulatory costs. Granted, you know, plutonium is made in nuclear power plants, but it, it does exist in nature. Yeah. It's just hard to get. And so it's, it says $4,000 a gram. And the next one down is only $270 a gram. It's a rare earth element scandium, which we like to use, but it's hard to find. There's not much of it in the world. So even gold is less than $270 a gram. I mean, it's, we usually measure per ounce. And last time I looked, it was, I don't know, 1800 an ounce or something like that. But I don't, I don't know. Yeah, the only thing I'm but measuring grams down. are my coffee beans. <laughs> There's no comparison. My coffee is priceless. Oh, of course, yes. I bet it's radioactive. Oh, dear. I, I am absolutely 100% certain that your coffee beans are radioactive and you're drinking radiation in your coffee. <laughs> Thank you. I really needed to hear that. No. That explains why it's so invigorating. Yes, I know for certain <laughs> why it's invigorating. <laughs> why it's so hot. <laughs> yes. <sighs> One of my friends who listens to this show has pointed out to me a couple of times a great use for spent radioactive fuel would be concrete. Oh, Pour it into concrete and build your house out of it, and you have a self-heating home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Ah, Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. So we're talking about radiation. We haven't even gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Radiation is something people fundamentally misunderstand, partly because we're trained to be afraid of it, partly because science fiction tells us you can, you know, turn blue and disappear or breathe fire if you get exposed to radiation or turn to Spider-Man or whatever. <laughs> so we have, it, it's both terrifying and magical at the same time. People just don't get it that it's part of the natural world and we're constantly bathed in it and we don't die from it. Yeah, we would have thought that it was just in pockets and isolated cases and specific places nope. and generated by man-made nope. electronics. Nope, the carbon-14 in our bodies is radioactive. The uh, potassium-40 in our bones is radioactive. You can get, I saw a YouTube video, a guy took potassium out of bananas, like a pile of bananas, and he did all these chemical extractions, got the potassium out, and holds up the Geiger counter, and it's radioactive. (laughs) Golly. Would it have been like, you know, a a bushel of bananas to get a gram of Yeah, something like that. Yeah? Yeah, something of, of that nature, yes. And he also processed the peels. I don't remember if the... Peels or the meat had more radiation in it, but he he measured both of them. (laughs) So we have to deal with radiation. We have to define what it is. And there's a problem. It doesn't have a definition. Oh, really? Sort of like honey. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like honey. Radiation can be a light wave or an electron or the nucleus of a helium atom. We call all those things radiation. See, when we went through the periodic table... I ended up re-listening to that episode a few times, and I enjoyed it every time. And I was trying to nail down an understanding of radiation along the way, and now I understand why it was tricky. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, don't, I didn't feel like that was clearly understood by the end. Yeah. So we talk about alpha, beta, and gamma radiation. And alpha radiation is the least dangerous. It's the least powerful. It won't even penetrate a sheet of paper. It won't penetrate your skin. It's uh, a form of radiation that's released by radium. <clears throat> Got it right that time. <laughs> and it's, it's basically a helium nucleus. It's two protons and two neutrons with no electrons. 
And because it's positively charged, it will curve in a magnetic field. There's a link I put in the show notes on cloud chambers. Click on that link and go to the one minute mark on this video. Okay. I've done this in a laboratory and it's cool. And anyone can do this. In fact, you can use a smoke detector because they have a little bit of radiation in them. You take dry ice and put it underneath something and put a little bit of alcohol in like a pail. Okay. And if you put a source of radiation in there, the particles streaming through the alcohol cloud will condense and make little streams. Are those the radiating particles? Yes. Zip, 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 zip. Yeah. You can see the speed and you can see several different types. Some of them go much faster and much further. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's messy. It looks like dust that's in a big hurry. Yes, that's alpha versus beta. And if you put a magnetic field in there, they will curve and they'll curve in different directions because one's positively charged and one's negatively charged. And, and, and there's funky parts of it too that seem to spiral on its path like you'd imagine a snowflake caught up in the, in the wind. Yes, or a particle bouncing into alcohol molecules which are much larger than the particle. So the video, is this in real time or is it sped up? Yes. Okay, because this is unreal. It, it looks like dust, really thick dust. The dust is the alcohol vapor. Okay. The alcohol condensing in the air as it gets close to that um, dry ice that's on the, underneath the piece so of So that we can see the radiation, yeah. Yes. And then the, the charged particle zipping through the alcohol cloud makes alcohol condense and it leaves a little trail behind it. It looks like it's making a pattern of marble in the air yeah 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 if you took a snap a snap frame of it or a picture of it mm-hmm. but we have alpha particles and beta particles which are electrons much more energy much faster much more dangerous now alpha particles um they're ionizing radiation they're really dangerous if you ingest them because they tend to strip the the uh, skin off your esophagus or your lungs so you don't want to get them inside you but outside eh, not very dangerous at all but the beta particles they will penetrate your skin and give you cancer mm. then after those two i'm going to turn off this video here after those two there's another form of radiation it is called gamma alpha particles helium nuclei positively charged beta particles are electrons negatively charged and then there's gamma and gamma is literally a light wave some radioactive sources can also emit x-rays, which are a little less powerful than a gamma ray. But you, you say x-ray, you know it causes cancer. You know it's dangerous. But gamma rays are even smaller wavelength and have even more energy per photon. They're very dangerous. So those are the three types of radiation that they talk about. But there's actually a fourth type, and that is neutrons. Californium, I said a minute ago, it releases 139 million neutrons per minute per microgram. That'll kill you dead neutrons running around you don't want your body to be impacted by neutrons because they destroy your atoms oh boy they, it's like a bullet and it'll blow up an atom when it hits the nucleus or it'll convert an atom into a radioactive element you don't want neutrons floating around especially high energy neutrons coming out of some radioactive source so it's a four types of radiation they're all very different they all do different things physiologically some are safer than others and one of them is literally light so you, if, if you look at the spectrum, you have gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, visible light, infrared, microwaves, and then radio waves. It's just a continuum. Microwaves are radiation. So literally, when we put you know, a cup of coffee in a microwave, we literally are nuking the coffee to warm it up. But 
it's just a light wave. Yeah. And it's similar to a radio wave. Radi- radio waves are radiation. We have all these towers around us. Cell phones, 5G, <laughs> FM, AM. We are bombarding ourselves with radiation all the time. It's the biggest biological experiment man has ever done. And you know what? Our lifespan is still increasing. Yeah, that's a good point. Clearly, radio towers are not dangerous to human health. And we hmm. know a lot more about the, um, the physical interaction of these things with biology. And we don't, we don't interact with radio waves. Now, they can make us warm. There's this thing called an RF burn. If you go up to a high-powered transmitter and grab it while it's transmitting, it will burn your hand. Hmm. But that's because radio waves are similar to infrared. Now, our molecules don't absorb it very well, but if you get enough power in one place, our molecules will absorb enough of it, you'll actually get a burn. Hmm. But that's only if you like wrap yourself around the, the, the transmitter. If you're 20 feet away, it's not going to do anything at all. All right. This brings up one of the most fascinating things ever. Now, my friend that I talked about a minute ago, we have talked about this, but I've talked about this with other people also. Yeah. It's a famous thing that most people have never heard of. It's called the Demon Core. <laughs> no, the Demon Core. Okay. This the is Demon going. Core. This is the dark side of the Equinox show here. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, there was two atomic bombs that we dropped on Japan, but those were the only two atomic bombs we had. <laughs> We were making more. Wow, that's really dark. Well, but see, that's just it. Japan didn't know if we had any more. And the answer was, we didn't. But we were making them. And the Hanford site in Washington had made a 3.5-inch, 14-pound ball of plutonium and sent it down to the the, uh, Los Alamos plant where they were building atomic bombs. And Japan surrendered. So we never actually sent this ball of plutonium to Japan to blow up another city. Mm, Not yeah. that we had an atomic weapon yet, but we were getting it ready to go. So we had this thing of plutonium. They're like, okay, well, we're just going to use this to blow up the Bikini Atoll. So the Alpha, the Baker tests, this is going to be one of those, except we contaminated it. If they made this thing bigger, it would have gone super critical and blown up, or at least burned really hot. And so they put it on the edge of super critical. If it was four inches, the thing would have gone on fire, but it was only three and a half inches. So to make it go critical, basically atomic bomb, they'd wrap bombs around the fissile material and explode the other bombs, and that would squish the radioactive stuff down to a volume smaller than it can be, and it goes super critical, and all the atoms blow up at once, instead of just being slightly radioactive like plutonium is. Yeah. So they built this thing to be on the edge of supercritical. Well, 1945, right after the war, a scientist is studying this thing and he's got it on a, on a holder and he's putting these beryllium tungsten blocks around it. Now, beryllium is a, or tungsten, sorry, not beryllium is the second one. Tungsten blocks around it. Tungsten reflects neutrons. To get an atomic bomb to blow up, you need a lot of neutrons flow, flowing around in this core, striking a lot of atoms. When a neutron hits a plutonium atom, it cracks. And so he puts a, this thing that's on the edge of supercritical, and he surrounds it with neutron reflectors, which means the neutrons coming out of the plutonium are hitting that and bouncing back into the plutonium again. No problem, except he dropped one of the bricks right onto the core. And all the radiation detectors in the lab went, yeah. <laughs> he picked it up and died 25 days later of radiation poisoning. Mm. 
a security guard not more than 10 feet away died 33 years later. Wow. So 25 days versus 33 years, as if the security guard, I mean, he could have died of anything. And even if he died of cancer, it wasn't necessarily from this radiation exposure. The demon core killed this atomic scientist. Whew. Well, 1946, same thing happened again. This time there was a, a, a trick that these guys like to show all the visiting dignitaries. They take this, this core, which had another nickname. It was named the demon core after this. They, they had a, um, a half shell of beryllium, and beryllium is a neutron reflector. And another half shell, shell of beryllium that, you know, you put them together, it looks like a sphere, but they're not connected. And you put the ball of plutonium inside it, and if you drop the shell on top of the other shell, the ball would have gone super critical. But they wouldn't do that. They had like a finger hole on the top where they could hold it. <laughs> and, and they would slowly, they had these like these wedges, these wooden wedges. They pull the wedges out and slowly lower the, the two spheres together. And the Geiger counter would start going up, 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 up. And then they'd lift the spheres apart and say, ah, see that? We almost went super critical. Well, <laughs> some of the famous scientists said, you guys are going to be dead within a year. They called it tickling the dragon's tail. Oh. And this guy Slotkin, who's would have been famous, but he's dead nine days later. His trick was instead of using wooden wedges, he just used a flathead screwdriver. <laughs> and he'd, he'd put the the top of the beryllium sphere on top, and he'd he'd twist the screwdriver and slowly lower it down. And then, well, whoops, the screwdriver slipped, and they, mm. he instantly turned it. To lift it up again, but a one half second flash of blue light and heat, he died of radiation sickness nine days later. Mm. The guy who was immediately behind him, look, literally looking over his shoulder, really, yeah, died 19 years later. Wow. Some of the people in the room died 55 years later. And I think the guy over his shoulder died of a heart attack, not cancer. One of the guys died in the Korea. He was a soldier, one of the guards in the room. He died in Korea. He got shot. So that didn't count, even though he got a pretty good dose. A couple of people died of radiation, but one of the men, he died at 80 years old, of old age. <sighs> so we asked the question, how dangerous is radiation? At acute levels, it will kill you dead. Fast. At low levels, it's not that clear. It elevates your risk of things like cancer, but it's not guaranteed you're going to get cancer. I mean, since we're bombarded with cosmic rays and carbon-14 breaking down in our body and potassium-40 breaking down in our body, we're surrounded by radiation all the time. And yet, some people lived over 120 years. Obviously, radiation is not a death sentence. And so there's, there's people that argue, okay, does that mean if you double the radiation exposure, you double your risk of cancer? The answer is no. If you quadruple the radiation dosage. Do you quadruple the risk of cancer? The answer is no. But as soon as you reach a certain level, you greatly increase your risk of cancer and other things that are radiation related. It's not a linear response. And so there's this, a large safety margin and then you see that and you're dead. This is like really basic science here, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Okay. Is it sort of like how we can tolerate a good deal of heat 
But then physically, you just keep cranking us up into extreme temperatures and you reach a point when we just start to bake, dehydrate, and eventually bristle and blister. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, like we can handle a lot of heat to a point. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's excellent. And we can handle a lot of radiation to a point. Yeah, your body can deal with heat by sweating. And then when you run out of water, you just die of heat stroke. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Okay, well, so that's the demon core. And this brings up questions about Three Mile Island, which was a radiation leak in power plant in Pennsylvania, but did, was it even dangerous to human health? Or Chernobyl, which I know we've talked about on this show before. Uh, Midnight in Chernobyl was an excellent book. Fantastic, amazing book. And the guy went through the story and talked about the thousands upon thousands of workers who came to Chernobyl with radiation tags and some without. You'd work until your radiation tag turned black, and then they send you home. And they pulled these people from all over the Soviet Union. And some of them would work for 10 minutes, and they got a lifetime dose of radiation. Mm, And yet, there was no obvious spike in cancers. Now, part of that is because they sent the people back to the hinterlands, you know, all across the Soviet Union. It wasn't like they all lived in Minsk. And so it's kind of hard to find them. But even in the air, the people that were immediately affected, some people died right away or slowly over the next couple of weeks of radiation poisoning. And that's clear. And some people got thyroid cancer. And that's clear. But thyroid cancer is actually kind of easy to treat. You just cut out the thyroid gland and then you take thyroid hormones the rest of your life. Hmm. I mean, it's not fun. And it can kill you if you don't catch it. But then... After that, everyone's dying of cancer at the regular old background radiation of people who were never at Chernobyl. Hmm. So how much radiation is dangerous is still an open question, except after World War II, at, at the, mm, I don't know, the pushing of the American government, we started something called the um, Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, the ABCC. And it was designed to study the effects of radiation on the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they signed up over 100,000 people, including over 3,000 women who were pregnant when those bombs went off. And they knew where the people were when the bomb went off so they could estimate their exposure level to radiation. And they've been studying those people since World War II. Hmm. They're still studying them because some of them are still alive. Yeah, interesting. What they noticed was that there was a spike in leukemia, specifically amongst young people. But that trailed away after a while. So, and and the the risk of radiation exposure depended upon how old you were. So, if you had a forty year old standing next to a ten year old, and they're both the same distance away from the blast, by the time that ten year old is forty, the forty year old is now seventy. The ten year old has a higher risk of cancer than the seventy year old, or than the forty year old. The age at which you're exposed, people that are growing when they're exposed to cancer have a higher rate of when they're exposed to radiation, they have a higher rate of developing cancer than people who are fully grown. Oh, that's strange. Hmm. In the, there's a paper that will be in the show notes that, that I learned a lot of stuff from. I, learned, I read some other sites too, but this is a, a, good, a good summary of this long-term radiation exposure. There's a map of Hiroshima. And there's a, two circles. That's two kilometers and three kilometers away from the blast site. And there's all these colored dots. And the colored dots are people in the study. And they colored the people according to the radiation dose. So purple, brown, green, yellow, orange, red. But if you look at the map, you'll see that there are red dots right near ground zero. There were people literally underneath the atomic bomb explosion that survived. 
Wow. They were in cement or brick buildings. In fact, there was a woman literally at right near ground zero. She worked in the big, thick bank. And she might have been even in the vault when the bomb went off. She lived to tell about it. She That's was incredible. literally a couple of hundred feet away from an atomic bomb when it went off and she survived. That's amazing. Because she was protected from the heat and the first shock of radiation from the blast by the thickness of the walls. So factoring those things into account, they've been studying these people for a long time. Well, first of all, they notice an age effect and specific cancers, but other ones, they weren't elevated at all. Only certain cancers are elevated, not all cancers. And at no point did the radiation dose ever equal 50% of cancers. So in other words, if you had a, you know, just because you're 80 years old, you have a certain risk of lung cancer or colon cancer or something like that. Well, other people in Japan that weren't exposed to the radiation are coming down with those same cancers. And so even if the cancer for that is elevated in the Hiroshima Nagasaki area for 80-year-olds, it's not even more than 50% of the risk. In other words, if you had 100 people and you expect, or say if you had 1,000 people and you expected 50 of them to get lung cancer, well, maybe 25 of those you could attribute to the radiation exposure. And they also studied the next generation, so the children of the survivors, and they didn't notice any radiation effects. Oh, fascinating. Were they born they don't have after the radiation? Before, did they? Yeah, so mm-hmm. mom, and, mom and or dad were irradiated. You know, years to decades later, they have a child. There's no elevated risk of birth defects or chromosomal abnormalities. Yeah, I would not have expected that. I didn't either. I don't think anyone did. And it's because radiation is weird and it does things we don't quite expect. It's just strange. Apparently. There's a... A fascinating guy on the internet. I've watched a lot of his videos. He's called the Illinois Energy Prof. And I love listening to the guy. He's just dry and he just talks. But the stuff he says, like most of this was stuff he says, like I had no idea. Hmm. I didn't know this was true. And he talks about radiation doses and he talks about cancer risk from radiation and things like that. And he breaks things down into numbers easy to understand. He's got this very weird trick where he's talking, but between him and the camera is a sheet of glass and he writes on the glass backwards how does he do that <laughs> i've seen that from a few it's how do, yeah i don't get it like they, they can just do it on the fly it's, a, it's either either he's writing backwards or it's a camera trick something i think he's writing backwards i've seen a couple other people do this in my lifetime and yeah it's it's an impressive skill maybe they actually flip the video around and he's writing forward <laughs> they- I don't know, but it's a cool trick. Anyway, I love listening to this guy. And he's taught me a lot about all sorts of things, just energy. And one of the things I learned a lot about was radiation. And it's not what I thought. It's literally surprising in that we're bathed in it and it doesn't kill us dead. And doubling the exposure doesn't double your risk. But once you go beyond a certain threshold, your risk goes way up. And we saw that Hiroshima, we saw that with the Demon Core, we saw that at Chernobyl. And so the physics of radiation is cool, is even more interesting and even more hard to understand. Wow, that is so peculiar. Like you were saying, we just don't have a clear definition of what this substance is. And nope. we know it's dangerous. One version versus another word is more dangerous. <sighs> interesting. So that's it. That's it for my radiation spiel. I ran out of notes and I think that's probably enough of the audience for one day. It does explain a whole lot more of the periodic table. Yeah. Well, good job.
Thanks so much for joining us on this quest. And if you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with your friends and or a family member. This episode's links and show notes are available in most podcast players with the show, but you can also find them at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 54. And if you get Equinox Plus, you'll also be getting bonus episodes. You can check that out at our Patreon page. A link will be in the show notes. You should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to catch me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other show, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. I talk about technology and the like with my other friend, TJ Draper. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. Thank you, sir. So you want to talk about bees for a few more minutes? Sure, man. I know it's a huge switch of gears. Bees don't radiate anything, do they? Um, well, That would explain why honey cannot be described, just like radiation. <laughs> bees collect things that are radioactive, but not any more than the, you know, the chair I'm sitting on. Well, we do need to get going here in a minute, but yeah. can you just answer one question? Sure, man. Have you entertained the idea of what you would name your queen bee? I have not. Okay. Well, can, let me tell you what I've named mine. Oh, you named your queen bee. All right. Oh, it was it was easy. It was, as soon as I realized what to name my queen bee, it's like naming a pet. My dad, out of the blue, gave me goldfish for my birthday this year. One of them is kind of a murky gray, so I don't know that it's a goldfish, but it, it, its <laughs> body looks just like the shape and size of a goldfish. All right. And the other one just looks like a goldfish. You don't know what to call them for the first month and days are going by and you're like, are we ever going to come up with a name for these? And then I'm just looking at them and the, the gray one wants to eat. The, the gold one seems to be a bit skittish. And I just thought, here I'm sipping my coffee, feeding the fish. And I was like, oh, and then it struck me right in the middle of the face. You know, it's your name's Bree. And <laughs> Bree, of course, the gray one's name is Bree. And then my wife tells me, oh, Brie, as in like the horse from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And that means that the orange one's Winnie. And I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, they're Winnie and Brie. <laughs> All right. That's a deep dive into, into lore there. You said Brie and I thought Tolkien. Yeah. As in the, the, the village that the hobbits fled to. Okay. All right. Yeah. Meet at the Prancing Pony. Yeah. So then you got honeybees. And what I named mine was Martha. And the reason I named the Queen Martha is because she's working really hard and kind of echoing the biblical Martha, you know, oh, that not Martha uh, Jesus okay. had a talking right. to. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. But then um, I also was always just a, I'm, I've been a, a lifelong Superman fan. So yeah. Superman's mother's name is Martha. Oh, you mean his, his adopted mother? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So I was on online today and I'm just like, you know, I know people re- raise queen bees. I'm like, can you, I know she lays eggs, right? So can you just start an entire colony with just a queen? 
Oh, interesting thought. Yeah, and and it's well, a, I mean, they had to start somewhere like that. Uh, no, maybe not. Oh, really? Because after a while, I I realized that people were aggressively answering a question. No, you moron, you can't do that. And I'm like, what, really? So reading, reading, reading. Yeah, you need nurse bees to feed the larvae. The queen doesn't do that. Ooh. And you need nurse bees to keep the larvae warm. One queen is not enough to make enough heat to keep the babies warm. So you need at least a couple of hundred bees. At least. Fascinating. Apparently in laboratory settings, they have, they have successfully had colonies with just a few hundred. But in the wild, you need at least a few thousand. That's the word on the street from what I read today. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to start a whole colony. I'm just going to start from a queen. I'm going to look in my hive here. I'm going to find a queen cell. I'm going to cut it out. And I'm going to have a laying queen. I'm going to make my own bees. No, that was really dumb. Because <laughs> I knew, I didn't realize it, but I already knew the answer without, but I hadn't thought through it enough. And speaking of the queen cells, I, I w- while I was inspecting my comb, I didn't realize that the queen cells would be protruding just the extra bulbous oh you saw coming them. out of the comb yeah i saw one oh, the, the, well they could be drone cells they're bigger and then the queen cells bigger than that this one looked big enough to that i would believe it had to have been a queen but just one of them was it on the margin of a comb well no does that seem to be a trend for the queens um yeah and it's something like the queen pheromone doesn't penetrate everywhere in the hive and the further away to towards the edges the more likely a worker will make a queen out of it. Okay. I guess it was a drone. Or workers will make a queen out of it. Because, I mean, the queen has to lay the egg, but then the workers feed. Well, I don't, I don't know. It might, might have been a queen. I don't know. Okay. Well, the next time you're watching a sci-fi, you know, be thinking about all the yeah. interesting, creative, clever characters and, you know, name your queen bee after one of them. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't think I'm going to. I don't think that's within my personality to name my queen bee. Okay. Yeah. All I right. I just don't think I can do it. What's the scientific term for bees? You know, the Latin term or... The hymenoptera? Or, or more descriptive than that? Latin for honey bees. Apis mellifera. I mean, you want the, the species right. name or the group of things called bees? Could, could you go with mellifera? It almost sounds feminine. Well, you know the name Melanie and Melody and... And Mel, there's the name Mela or Meli, Meli out of Mel, Mellifera. Mellifluous. Mm. This is the, Indo, the Indo-European word for bee or honey is Mel. means sweet. Oh, just the name Mel. Yeah. It's a great name for a bee. Except it's just she. Okay. Yeah. Melanie would make sense. Yeah. Melody is a sweet sounding song, but you know... Um, Melly? No, I'm not going to name a bee. <laughs> you're not going to trap me there. No, no, no. It's hard to believe that your your queen bee is related to my queen bee, and she just doesn't get a name. Nope. That's not fair. Nope. And you know what? She's not going to care. She's just a bee. <laughs> okay. I had been tempted to name a bee box and put racing stripes on it too, but oh, okay. okay, I'm not going to do that. that. I'm not going to go crazy. But racing stripes are cool. That, that would make sense, actually. Oh, okay. So we have a list here of disasters that have struck us over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Let's save some for, let, let's feed these out slowly. You name one disaster and I'll name one disaster and we'll save the others for next episode. Okay. I'll start with the milder disaster okay. and keep people waiting and guessing about the deeper one. 
uh, before we got the bee box with all the bees, I had, well, when I say the bee box, what I mean is like the colony in a box, you know, transported from the other beekeeper to my place. Before we got the colony, my bee box that Rob built me was here at the property for many, many months. Yeah. And we had, you had built me uh, legs for it and uh, like a pedestal so they could stand on those. So I set down a couple of bricks and then stood the legs, which were made of wood, with that tabletop so that the bee box could sit on those. And it was at a nice height that my son could get into it and is, you know, just good for both of us. And I told you to do that because I realized the legs I had made were a little flimsy. And I said, I don't, I don't like those legs anymore. And so you put cinder blocks, which is real smart. Real smart. Right, yeah. But, but the, even so, they, they were flimsy enough they had to be replaced eventually, sooner yeah. or later. Yeah. But just during one very crazy, windy evening storm, it blew over the whole, the whole thing, oh. smashed into the fence. With bees in it. Well, no, no, no. It happened once without the bees. And it was just a dry spell with high winds. Okay. You know, we had some rain, but the, the wind didn't come with the rain. The wind came in another part of the 24-hour day, and it just blew the whole thing into the fence, and it crashed down. But everybody, Rob made this thing out of oak. So that thing <laughs> did not take a hit from thick the oak. damage. Inch, from inch and a half thick over. oak yeah. on the bottom, yeah. <laughs> very good. We're not over to tank. Very robust. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it withstood that, and then we put the bees in it, and I relocated it, and I got cinder blocks, and I, I, that was actually far more secure, and it, it just, it, it's not going to topple over. But again, I guess the side of the bee box that I have it facing is the side where the lead raises, it got hit by high winds in a thunderstorm. And it lifted the lid right up and over like a sail, and it was able to raise the whole oh. bee box over and knock it down off of the cinder blocks. Because I didn't provide you with an eye hook. Oh, Joe, I feel terrible. Would you like an eye hook so you could lock the lid down? Oh, that would be brilliant. So yeah. what I'd been doing, I'd been my, thinking about what am I going to do? Just, I'll just bring one over. Oh, I feel terrible. I didn't realize that was what happened. I should have. I could just you know rotate the whole beehive around, but I like the entrance on the side that it's on. Yeah, because it faces away from the house. So that's probably a good idea. What I've done since then to temporarily deal with it, it was I just took off some of the cinder blocks that the bee box was standing on and put those cinder blocks on top of the whole thing to weigh it down. And that worked in the last thunderstorm. Okay, that's what mo that's what most people do, but most people don't have a box as large as ours with a hingy lid on it. Ah, hmm. I'm sorry. So I, when I, I when I got it up, I was afraid that it would have like split frames on the inside, that the bees would have gone crazy and dumped out, and half of them died. Yeah, I would have thought so too. And when I checked it out, the lid flopped open and shook a few of the frames outward a few inches, but for the most part, they were fine. And I just picked it back up with my wife and set it back up again. And there's no real noticeable damage on the outside. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So I think I decided to call the bee box the ark because <laughs> okay. it can take the winds and rain. Oh, yeah. And it's made of wood. Yeah. All right. So what happened to you? All right. Well, here's, here's one story for me. Imagine my dismay. You know those, those big black forest ants? 
Oh yeah. Not you know you typically don't see them in your not house. Not the fire ants. No no no. The big ones. The yeah. Big, These guys fat, are like two or three ants. times. Yeah. Yeah. And you tend to see them in you know rotten wood and things like that. Maybe one in your house every blue moon, but they're not ants that typically come inside. Well, mm. imagine my horror because I have my my hive under some trees in my backyard in a wooded area, and I was looking at my bees and I saw a little black ant, a big black ant, and it went into a crack. I said, where did that ant just go? And so I, I pulled the styrofoam insulation on the side of my hive away. He's like, no, he's not under the styrofoam. So I lifted up the lid. Oh, my. 10,000 giant black ants. Went inside. And there's so many of them. What? When they fall, they went, click. It sounded like someone spilling rice. Oh, dude. Like, Shh. like ew. And had eggs. And they had some big, big ones, like three or four really big ants, like a queen sort of, but more than one. And they start running everywhere, carrying their eggs like, no. So I went and I got a, a little hand broom and I, I brushed them away. And I was like, oh, they're just going to come back. They actually didn't come back. I brushed them down into the dirt. For real? Swept them away. Yeah. But then I'm like, wait a second. There's more here. And so you know how I had that styrofoam in the lid shoved up the top of the lid? Yeah. Well, I pulled the styrofoam back and there's... 10 times more ants. I basically built a little ant colony when I built the queen of uh, uh, honey, uh, what call it, a bee colony. And so I had many ants. Holy cow. And I chased them away and I kept brushing them and brushing them and I brush them off the side and I go look underneath my hive and, and sweep them off and then on the legs of the sawhorses that I have up. But as I was doing this, I broke one of the wires on my mass measuring thing. These four little strain gauges, one under each corner of the hive, and they're connected with very fine wire, and I snapped one of them. And I broke one of the wires on one of my temperature humidity sensors, so I lost power to one of my sensors. Arg. Rob, that's so, a bad day. When was, was this? Uh, a couple weeks ago. And so, but what I did was, I because I have power at my beehive, because I ran a 50-foot extension cord from the plug on my porch, just the power these little um, cell phone chargers because the a USB power goes to the, the three microprocessors that are doing all the data collection, talking to the internet. But that means that I had AC at my beehive. So I just went out there with my soldering iron and plugged it into my beehive. <laughs> so I'm sitting here you know, in the woods with a soldering iron waiting for it to heat up to melt lead. And I resoldered <laughs> the one thing and then I resoldered the other thing and everything worked after that. Wow. Stupid <laughs> ants. But every now, every day now, or every other day, I go and I lift up the lid, and there's usually an ant or two, and I'll just brush it away. But I'm not going to let them start a new colony. Yeah, I've seen a couple of the teeny tiny ants. I yeah, don't know if they are really young ants or not, but I've seen a couple of them crawling around the exterior. Yeah, no, no sign always, that they're trying to make nest. Yeah, there always be some ants. I I usually squish them or knock them off just because I don't want ants finding unguarded honey or anything like that. But I think I think the bees will will be attacking anything that goes in there. Mm. Related, but not to bees. We had this great big kettle-looking thing that you would maybe fill with dirt and put in some potted, 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 uh, some flowers into, so that you could have, uh, you know, just something decorative by the front door or something. So we had this great big-looking kettle-like thing that was turned upside down in the backyard next to the back patio, and it was sitting there, you know, since sometime last winter. 
So when my son was sent to the backyard to cut the grass at the beginning of spring, he flips it over and he comes, finds me and says, dad, you will not believe it. There's this enormous anthill. And I'm thinking, yeah, my son, he's, he's 11. <laughs> he, he doesn't know what enormous anthill really looks like. <laughs> I'll go check it out, you know, when I have some free time. And so I say, that sounds nice, Jude. You know, I'll go check on it later. I go check on it later. And Rob, the kettle is like large enough to hold a lot of dirt with root systems. It's a big thing. You know, like you, if you filled it with dirt, it would weigh over 45 pounds. Okay. And the kettle itself is very solid. So you, you inflate a beach ball and it would be able to fit into the inside of this kettle. Well, the anthill almost filled the entire cavity of it cool. and was fixed, so when had he, like fixed dirt towers to the top of the kettle. So the, the, the ants had tried to go as high as they could, like the Tower of Babel reached the roof of the kettle and then stopped only when they, when they, they hit the ceiling, when they hit cool. the sky. Now, were these big black ants or this fire ants? These were fire ants, but uh, but after my son flipped the kettle over to expose their hill, they actually were already gone. Well, yeah, they went down the ground. Yeah, they went down. It's crazy because th- this ant hill wasn't around last year, and there's no other sign of the ant hill around the back patio. It was just in this one crazy spot. I've never seen an ant hill this big at my home anywhere in my cool. lifetime in Georgia. Have you seen those videos where people will melt aluminum and pour it into an ant or a termite mound and then yes. dig up the aluminum afterwards? Yes. <laughs> I love those. It's oh. so cool. <laughs> it is so cool and weird. It's amazing. Yeah, if you haven't seen that, people, you have to go look it up on YouTube. It's so weird. Yeah. Ants, bees, wasps, beetles. We're just fighting insects all the time, aren't we? Mm-hmm. We're trying to love some of them, but all the other ones are just plaguing us. Wax moths, varroa mites which aren't insects. Well, check out the video. I'll have a video in the links of my bee activity and getting that bee excluder uh, made with Rob. And uh, you'll be able to see some of the bees that I spied collecting nectar off of local clover here in the neighborhood. Oh, really? Close. Cool. That was really fun. Yeah. That's probably your really bees. hard to find them, but yeah, yeah, they have to be my bees. I, I hadn't seen any bees here the rest of the last two years. No, you weren't paying attention, man. No, I, I was. I, okay. I look around it. Okay. I don't see, I see a lot of wasps, occasionally hornets, maybe some yellow jackets. And I see plenty carpenter bees. Yeah. All right. But your spidey senses will be growing over time. Yes, that would make sense. And you're going to be noticing them now. Everywhere you go, you'll be noticing them and what they're doing and wondering where their hive is and things like that. It's mm. kind of cool when you, when you start. Yeah, it is. It's sort of like when you become a parent, you start paying attention to other people's kids also. Just by default. Yeah. Something you would never think of before, but you know, that kid's about to, you know, fall off the Niagara Falls and die. And so your, your spidey senses go up and you're kind of like, <laughs> and you're paying attention to someone else's child because you're yes. attuned to it. Well, before that, you'd be like, hey, that kid just fell. Yeah. Because <laughs> you wouldn't even have thought about beforehand, you know, maybe stopping it. Yeah. <laughs>